Hello. Hey, Michael. It's Chris. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm good. Cool. Hi, Chris. Julie it's Julie. Here. Hey, Julie. How are you? I'm good, thank you. You're dialed in from different phones, obviously, but are you in the same location? No, I'm at the Washington Bureau. I'm at the Capitol. I'm actually going to spend some time helping out with impeachment coverage the next few months. So. The next few months, huh? So you, you're pretty confident <laughs> Four on weeks, that. or whatever it is. I, I stole him. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> she stole me for, for the duration. Little... Okay. She's my editor now, which is what she was during the book. We both edited each other during the book. Mike, I hope that you were uh, fair-minded and gracious in whatever editing you did on Julie, because I... I gotta tell you, man, turn 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 around cannot feel good. Yeah, yeah, we both edited each other. It was all good. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Then I am ready to go. If you are, sounds Sounds good. good. Three, two, one. I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. This episode is sponsored by Working Capital Review. Looking for the best collection of ideas that drive global business? Go to workingcapitalreview.com, sign up with your email, and each day get a new smart post delivered. Between the ridiculous alligator moat revelation and horrendous, inhumane taking of children from their parents, when considering Donald Trump's immigration policy, it can be hard to get past the headlines. But it turns out the immigration story serves as an incredibly useful way to consider the entire Trump presidency. Obsession, chaos, fear, depravity, and yet meaningful, important, and potentially lasting change that has shifted not only how the world views America, but how we view ourselves. This story has been told through a combination of clear context, incredible detail, and expert storytelling by Julie Hirschfeld Davis and Michael D. Shear in their new book, Border Wars, Inside Trump's Assault on Immigration. As you'll hear in our conversation, Davis and Shear bring us inside the rooms, uncomfortable places, really, as extreme ideas about immigration move directly from the collective minds of Steve Bannon, Stephen Miller, and Jeff Sessions into the campaign and then presidency of Donald Trump. You'll hear how Miller outmaneuvered generals and cabinet secretaries to seize control. You'll also hear about the key player who might be the most confounding of all, former Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. In fact, as you hear more about these policymakers and as you read Hirschfeld Davis and Scheer's book, it all seems to lead to the central questions of our time. Who are we and what is America? Some background on Julie and Mike, who, as far as I can tell from what is admittedly quick research, seem to have covered every important Washington, D.C. story in the last 25 years. Julie is congressional editor at the New York Times. She also serves as a CNN political analyst. Michael is a White House correspondent for the New York Times, and you can catch him frequently on CNN as well. Before my conversation with Julie and Michael, though, I have an ask from me to you. I hope you like these conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Several more of you did over the last week. Thank you. It makes a big difference. You know the parallel ask, though. If you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. That's it. Here's my conversation with Julie Hirschfeld Davis and Michael D. Shear. Julie, Michael, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. Happy to do it. So I I think the first question that anyone is going to want to know after seeing the headlines from the book is, after a couple of years of writing together, um, do you still talk to each other, or is that only for uh, interviews like this? I think 
we're pretty much on, on good speaking terms still, yeah. Yeah, um, we, we, we made it through. Okay, good. Because this could get uh, really, <laughs> this, this could get really uncomfortable and, and truly. That's I, what you want to ask. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get, you know, we'll, we'll get into to some of that stuff, but, um, you, you may know, Julie, I, I know, uh, Mike from several years back in a, a different lifetime. You need any old time ammunition on him, you know, just to get back. I'm, I'm happy to help any that's, way I can. That's a low blow, Chris. <laughs> that would be great. And actually, I have some stories for you also, I, probably I, that, have had, that have occurred I, since those days. So I, the two I, of us I, should probably talk after. Okay. Oh, we'll talk yeah. after. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that you do. You, you have a lot of stories um, as well in the book. And I don't think it's possible to talk with uh, the two of you without starting with with the headline of the stories and the ones that have captured everyone's attention in the last couple of weeks. And, and we'll get into the, the policy and, and everything, but can we start with alligators and moats and electrified and flesh-piercing spikes and, of course, the idea that, you know, comes about every day, just shooting people in the legs – <laughs> Julie, did you believe that when you heard it? Well, by the time we heard it, yes, I would say we did believe it because we had heard so many stories by then of, um, you know, the kind of anger and frustration that the president would routinely show when he talked about immigration and um, talked about what he considered to be the resistance to his idea of a wall and um, really some of the very kind of visceral reactions that he would have and uh, the musing that he would do routinely about these issues. You, you, normally, a president uh, tends to have a very sort of focused idea of what he wants to see happen. It's like, here's what's on the agenda. Here's what we're going to do. I want to open it up to my aides to get some good advice on this. That's not the way this president operates at all. He sort of comes at it from a very kind of businessman slash reality TV show host approach where he's like spitballing all the time. Well, what if we did this? And what, what if we did that? And well, this is not working the way I want it to. So we, let's try something else entirely. And, you know, that can be very difficult for the, for in the context of government where everything is about long range planning and procurement and bidding out contracts. And all of this, all of these things had happened according to what he had said he wanted, which was a wall along the Southwestern border. And in meeting after meeting, the president would continually come up with other ideas of what he wanted to do. And he would talk about about, well, what if we had a trench? And what would what could be inside the trench? And he would bring it up so often that finally some of his aides went and had the Army Corps of Engineers actually send an estimate for what a, what digging a trench would actually cost on the border, which was going to be three times as much as putting up a wall. And then he would talk about these things about alligators, about snakes, about what you might fill this trench with. And, you know, his aides would wonder in real time whether he was really serious about this. And some of the time they would just kind of ignore it and try to move on. And some of the time he would be engaged in a very elaborate description of everything that he wanted to happen to a person if they even attempted to approach the wall. And that was, I think, the big thing in his mind was deterrence. He thought that the more painful, the more imposing, the more threatening this structure was, the less likely people would come. And that sort of was top of mind for him at all times. And then when this idea emerged last summer, uh, where he was talking about migrants throwing rocks at personnel, U.S. personnel at the border, yeah. 
And he said publicly, you know, I want them to treat those rocks as rifles, which essentially was saying, you know, I want our border people to be shooting back when people are throwing rocks at them. It led to this sort of insane scramble among his advisors to send to the White House a copy of the use of force policy, which says that you can't actually use lethal force unless you're confronting a lethal threat. And as soon as he was told that, rather than back down, he basically said at a meeting not long after, well, what if we, I understand we can't shoot to kill, but what if we just shot to wound them in the legs? Yeah. Well, I guess it's it's either that or sharks with, you know, freaking laser <laughs> beams attached. Yeah. Um, you, you, well, let's you, not get too crazy. You didn't yeah, go that, that far. Yeah, that, that, that <laughs> of course, would, would be ridiculous. You, you know, there's so many things that you just touched on, and the last of which um, I, I will ask about. But among the things I took away, and you really just hit on it, you know, on, on one level, the book is about immigration and immigration policy and the history of immigration policy in this country and and who we are and where we should go on that. But on other levels, and in other ways, the book is also about um, the uh, Trump, about Trump's and the Trump administration's reckoning with bureaucracy, reckoning with government, trying to figure out how do you get things done and how do you and, and how do you not get things done and their whole total different approach to governing and public policy and the and the bureaucracies reckoning with oh my god how do we how do we do anything when you know how do how do we keep a an orderly you know progression of events i mean julie you were just talking about how normally um you know it takes time for policies to work their way through a, a government and and that as well um, was you know was something I took away. The other part, and Mike, I, I'd love you to react to this. Um, you know, Julie mentioned that that you know part of his talking about alligators and moats and these suggest you know were his increasing frustration. Parallel to that, I was struck by how much of a motivator it was. It seems from reading your narrative for really senior people, for for John Kelly, for Jeff Sessions. Um, for for H.R. McMaster to either please the president or to avoid his wrath. And, I mean, you've covered White Houses. Everyone must want to please the president. I mean, I, I fully assume that. But is the, right. the sense, the, the desire to please and the desire to avoid wrath, is that more extreme? Is it more of a motivator? Um, or did you, or, or did it come across that way simply because of the topic that you guys chose to cover? Well, I think, no, I mean, I think you've, I think you've hit on something, you know, to, to back up just a little bit, what you said at the beginning about, uh, this book being more about more than immigration. I think we really, we really, um, entered the, the process that way. We said we, we, Julie and I both covered immigration for years. And so we wanted it to be sort of an issue that mattered, an issue that was important to who we are as Americans. But we also said to ourselves, this is a book more broadly about the Trump administration and how the Trump administration works or doesn't work. And, you know, that brings me to your second point, which is, you know, yes, of course, everybody in, in, in the government, in any government, I, Julie and I both covered the Obama White House, uh, you know, there is a, a, you know, an assumption that if you're working for the administration, you're working to advance the interests of, of the government, and the government is led by the President of the United States. 
Um, the difference is, and I think what we try to document over and over again in the book, is the um, is that in the normal White House, the process is is the friend of the bureaucrat or of the of the uh, political appointee, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, you're working for the president, but there's a there is a normal, regular process through which. Um, you know, both the, the decision-making process bubbles up from the bottom and the experts in whatever subject matter, in this case immigration, um, are actually, uh, you know, for helping to formulate policy. And then that, that makes its way up to, through the channels into the President of the United States, who makes a decision in, and, um, you know, then it goes back down the chain of command to be implemented. And what I think what we see again and again, and, and, and the things that Julie was talking about with the sort of rage uh, the sort of rages of the president on the border wall um, is that all of those processes broke down and are continued to be broken down. Frankly, um, there, I, don't, I don't think that we've seen any change since the since we finished the book. I mean, it you know instead of there being a regular process for sort of thinking about some of these things and debating them and coming to a conclusion, um, what you generally have is a combination of a president literally ranting at. Um, the the people around him in the Oval Office, and to a smaller extent, uh, him deputizing people like Stephen Miller, uh, who we write about a lot, who's sort of the architect of all of this, um, to uh, essentially circumvent all of the normal processes in the State Department and the Homeland Security Department and elsewhere um, in order to push things through that will satisfy the president that normally would get stopped uh, kind of cold in their tracks and, and don't because because they, they're not going through the normal process. And so, I mean, I think those are the ways in which we sort of hope that people come away with a better understanding about, um, you know, how this White House it, uh, differs so dramatically from a normal one. Yeah, you, you outline it clearly. Um, you also just mentioned Stephen Miller. Um, I absolutely have questions uh, about him and about <laughs> uh, some of what you found. But the, another thing that, that you do um, is you set the context and I, f- I felt like there, there was these two coming together um, of streams, it, it felt like to me. Um, on the one hand, um, it felt fascinating how this singular issue, um, immigration, captures so much of what Trump has come to represent, supposed anti-political correctness, fear, needing to p- uh, pit one person against each other, congressional and governmental gridlock. In, in, he came to the conclusion, though, um, Julie, even before he started campaigning, that immigration was the singular issue or, or maybe a singular issue that could manifest so much of what he was trying to sell. H- how did he come to that conclusion? H- how did that realization get, get born in him? Because it, it feels like that was a seed that he kind of came across um, and it has grown and grown and grown and now takes over so much. But understanding that original context um, feels really important to me. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating that um, I think immigration was all of those things for, for Trump. And, and, you know, he is not a policy person. He doesn't tend to, you know, delve into the details of any issue, including immigration, although he knows a lot more about it, I would say, than most domestic policy issues. Um, but I think for him, it really was more of a symbol than it was a substantive focus, that it, it was code for and was embedded in everything that um, he thought that people were angry about in the country um, and that 
conventional politics had just failed to address, right? That there, there had been years of bipartisan efforts to get uh, some sort of compromise on immigration, uh, which is, you know, had to do with a pathway to citizenship for the undocumented people who are already in this country, which, you know, he and his supporters felt was an amnesty, an unfair uh, approach, something that was just, uh, like you said, a politically correct way of approaching the problem. It was definitely the case that he was billing himself as somebody outside of politics and outside of like the dysfunction of Washington. And what better kind of symbol of Washington dysfunction is there than, you know, this completely broken. And I think everyone from both sides of the political spectrum could agree that the system as it is now is pretty broken. Um, and so it was very, I think he felt early on that it was a, a very powerful theme. But I think more than anything, what attracted him to it was the sort of visceral response he would get from crowds when he would talk about it, mm. when he would say these things about Im- immigrants and immigration and, you know, they're taking things from you and you, you know, the American people are the victim. And he would talk about a wall. He would just get such a response because it was that this issue was that not only for him, but for a lot of his supporters, this symbol of how conventional politics had betrayed them and wasn't speaking to their needs and was in fact counter to everything that, you know, they needed. Um, and it was a way of addressing a feeling of alienation, cultural alienation in the country as, as the demographics have changed, a way of addressing economic displacement that people were feeling as a result in part of mass immigration and globalization and trade, which is the other big issue that he would talk a lot about. And so I think it was a natural thing for him. And he's such a performer that he really fed off of the response it would get in front of his crowds. And that's why his advisors, even before he was a candidate, understood that if they could get him to remember to talk about the wall, then they could get him to touch on immigration, which was going to be such a powerful part of his appeal, they thought, to to the voters. And parallel to that, um, you tell this story and, and really set you know a really vivid scene of um, Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller and Jeff Sessions in 2013 before they have connected with Trump plotting on how to design a populist working class anti-liberal elite anti-immigrant platform and, and a candidate – and Mike, they're doing that while eating steak and fish from Dean and DeLuca. I mean, come on now, you, you made you made that one up, right? They they weren't planning the, the the populist plan while eating steak and fish from Dean and DeLuca. That detail's not true, is it, Mike? No, it, it is true, and in, in fact, I think probably embodies embodies Steve Bannon's uh, contradictions uh, uh, to a T, especially. Um, but yeah, look, what 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 we uh, I think the beginning of that chapter, that that chapter is titled The Vessel. And it's because mm. um, the three of them, Bannon, Miller and Sessions, um, came to conclude that not not only did they need a kind of philosophy to run on, but they needed somebody to to be the person to to carry that forth and to and to destroy and to kind of shatter the re- Republican establishment, which they um, saw as as just as culpable for the problems in American society and the problems in um, kind of the, 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 the group of people among the group of people that, that eventually went on to form the base of, of Trump's political support. Um, but they, they thought the Republican establishment was just as culpable as the democratic establishment. And, um, and, and, and they knew what they wanted to sell and Bannon had been selling it kind of through Breitbart and through, 
um, kind of conservative uh, uh, media for a long time. And Sessions and Miller had been railing in the U.S. Senate about uh, these issues uh, to, to largely no avail, sort of on the fringes of, of conservative and Republican politics. Um, but what they really needed was somebody to carry it forth and to actually be that person. And and while they they didn't really think about Trump at that dinner, they actually thought briefly about Sessions as a possible uh, candidate, and uh, and he quickly demurred. But 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 ultimately, I think they that conversation was a long dinner, it was like four or five hours, uh, and I think that set the stage for uh, what they would eventually settle on when they when they would hear Trump, who by then was already kind of traveling around the country giving speeches. Uh, it, it solidified everything that they had talked about uh, during that dinner and, and ultimately is, is, is obvious the three of them go on to become uh, key figures, not only in the campaign, but then in the administration as well. Yeah, incredible. They, they needed a vessel. Um, as, as you state. So, so let, let's talk about some of the people. Um, and let's start with Stephen Miller. I had forgotten, um, and, and you, you know, you've now stated it, both of you state had, have stated it, but I, I had forgotten until I'd read it. Um, Stephen Miller was the gift, um, from Jeff Sessions that just keeps on giving. I, I had forgotten that he had spent years writing and honing these very same ideas, um, for the junior senator, um, from Alabama, uh, at the time that now define, um, U.S. policy. So, um, Julie, tell me about Stephen Miller. Um, what was the Stephen Miller Friday group? How did he, figure out what, you know, what, what, how would you describe his take on bureaucracy? And you described that scene, um, in the, uh, it sounded like the, the one transition meeting that he sat th- through where with, uh, uh, Obama officials where he was sitting next to, um, his counterpart and, and kind of dismissed her, um, you know, when she, she said that you're going to actually have to work with the bureaucracy. And, and lastly, just to, you know, make the question as complex as possible for you. Um, how did he outmaneuver cabinet officials and generals like John Kelly and H.R. McMaster to take over immigration policy? Yeah, well, I think actually the first leads to the last, which is to say that one of the reasons he was able to or has been able to outmaneuver everyone is because he figured out um, the way to bond with Trump. And he and Trump have this very special relationship that stems from what his sort of the essence of Stephen Miller's character is, which is that he essentially thrives on being provocative, on thumbing his nose at the political establishment, at being willing to say outrageous things, the more outrageous and the bigger the reaction it can inspire from his opponents, the better. And he and Trump really share that and I think appreciate that in one another. And so early on when he came onto the campaign, you know, he's a young guy, he's in his early 30s, and Trump would have him introduce him at his rallies. And he would really get the crowd just riled up in a way that Trump loved. And I think he saw that sort of commonality with him and felt that Miller really embodied the essence of his own appeal, Trump's own appeal to his base. And so has kept him very close as a way of keeping faith with that base. And I think he considers Miller to be a person who you know, is always going to be loyal to him and always have those priorities at heart. And so I think that's, you know, that's sort of how he has survived. When I first worked with Stephen, he was 
Jeff Sessions' aide on Capitol Hill. And this was very much the role he played then as well. But it's interesting because I came to know him as kind of this Republican staffer who was on the really on the fringes of the immigration debate. I mean, the people who had spent a lot of time and energy um, in this realm were Democrats and a handful of sort of mainstream Republicans who were really trying to cut that global deal that they talked about for so long. Mm. And there were, you know, they, they would try and they would fail and they would try and they would fail. But it was really the hardliners who were just opposed to any of it, uh, who really were on the outside looking in on all of those negotiations. And Stephen was one of those. And uh, he used to send these emails, just streams and streams of emails with all this data. He loved to, to send you polling information and survey data and government data sort of twisted in various ways to show that immigration was actually hurting Americans, that it was taking people's jobs, uh, that it was, you know, uh, elevating national security risks, all of those things. So I was very familiar with him from that realm. And he very quickly took up that mantle in this administration as well. And from those years, he had this kind of click of like-minded people who he knew from the Hill and in some cases, federal agencies. And when he got to the White House, when he got to the West Wing, he started, as you mentioned, this Friday group of almost sort of an in-house unofficial think tank that was singularly focused on immigration and all of the various ways that they could kind of pull the levers of the government, whether it be through legislation or regulation or whatever it might be, memoranda to interpret the law as it already was, um, to basically restrict immigration flows and to make it harder and more burdensome to be an immigrant in the United States. And they set about very methodically trying to figure out all the different ways they could do that. Yeah, incredible the stuff that that they have pulled off in the way that they've used and tried to use just about every tool of the bureaucracy and and laws and policies um, to turn them in their favor. Just a a quick follow-up question. So did you, if, if you have known him for years, or at least been aware of him for years, and potentially, I guess, engaged with him on, on, in some ways on policy or you were on the receiving end of his emails for years. Did you have an opinion of him then? And is it consistent with our public view of him now? Because the public view of him now um, uh, is, a, is a little dicey. Is that how, how did he come across back then? I think he came across then the way he comes across now, which is, and and it used to be that people would sort of roll their eyes and say, oh, you know, this is just Stephen again. He's Stephen being Stephen, sending these incendiary emails that are just so over the top. But then very quickly, he went from being just one staffer and frankly, a staffer that not many people listen to on Capitol Hill, even in his own party, to being probably one of the most influential people in the West Wing. So it's been a real fast and a little bit disorienting turnaround for everyone, I think, who has worked around him for a long period of time, including, you know, the folks who are who were in that room in some cases with him on, on in the Friday meetings who were used to him being sort of a colleague or someone that, you know, they would, you know, circulate talking points and speeches with to like now he's the one who's running all of this. And and we have this there's a scene in the book where we're talking about the deliberations over the refugee policy. Yeah. And um, you know, in the space of a year and a half, he has gone from the Republican staffers sitting behind a subcommittee chairman in the uh in the Senate who is getting the proposal from the Obama administration on raising the ceiling on how many refugees can be resettled in the country. And, you know, 
whispering in Jeff Sessions' ear so he can ask all these questions to try to undercut this effort to really expand the refugee program to, you know, fast forward 18 months, he's in the West Wing telling State Department officials, telling other administration officials, we want to shrink this number and we have to figure out a way to do that. And that's a really swift reversal that just kind of encapsulates the whole what he was trying to do, really, which is to say, okay, this is this giant battleship of government. It was going the wrong direction, and it's going to be my business to start turning it around. And he's sitting and at Chris, the... He- if I could just... One of the questions you asked was, you know, sort of how did he manage to outmaneuver people? And I think Julie is absolutely right that part of it was the relationship with Trump. And part of it was he, um, he wields uh, kind of misinformation and a kind of destruction of the process to his advantage, right? So, so uh, the refugee debate that Julie just mentioned was um, we described in many ways um, efforts by uh, Stephen Miller and his acolytes to uh, either diminish or prevent accurate information from being injected into the, the decision-making process uh, by, uh, you know, making sure that that uh, studies that show that that uh, refugees were actually a benefit net benefit economically to the United States to making sure those were shelved uh, or inserting assertions into the record uh, that, that couldn't be supported by the facts, according to the, to the experts who, had, who were in the government. And, and, you know, secondly, making sure that people who, people in the agencies, the experts who had uh, career diplomats, people who had worked on these issues for years, in some cases decades, um, were cut out of the process. I can't tell you the number of people that Julie and I talked to um, who described meetings that in any other administration, Democrat or Republican, would have had, um, you know, a, a certain defined group of people, assistant secretaries, experts in their field, uh, sitting around the table in the situation room, say in the White House or in a big conference room at DHS or at State Department. And in this administration, uh, either those people were not told about the meetings or cut out of the meetings or, um, uh, you know, simply pushed out so that they couldn't uh, they couldn't be part of the process. And I think, um, you know, Stephen wasn't very good at that early on in the administration, but I think over two and a half or three years, uh, he's gotten a lot better. And, and as a result, a lot of the policies that he's been pushing for many years and that have been frustrating uh, how slow they've gone, they're, they're finally coming to fruition. Yeah, he, he seems like a master of um, the maneuvering process that you just described. Mike, um, another person I need to ask you guys about, how am I supposed to feel about Kirsten Nielsen? I mean, she signed the family separation uh, policy, um, but not without that happening after being ravaged and and harangued and, um, you know, and and really uh, taking a lot of heat from a lot of different corners internally. Um, On the one hand, she is and will forever be known as the person who signed um, just the, you know, uh, policy. So, um, you know, Trump rescinded it, right? He even couldn't take, he, that you, as you note, know, it's the one policy that he, you know, took back. And of course, he also says, you know, added to some of the problem of immigration. But, but that's, you know, that's a, a separate concept. How am I supposed to feel about her? I mean, look, I, I actually think, um, of all the, people that we describe of all the characters in our book, I think she's the most interesting. And partly that's because of the dichotomy that you describe. I mean, she 
there will definitely be people for whom, uh, you know, her decision on on family separation is the unforgivable sin that they, you know, that that yeah. will forever define her career. And I think, you know, and I, and I'm yeah. not sure that's not a fair assessment. I mean, if you if if that, you know, you you what we describe, I think, in more detail than has ever been described before, is the way in which that decision was made and um, the way in which her. Uh, willingness under pressure, as you say, under intense pressure from the White House, but her willingness to sign that memo um, really put that pro- put put that uh, policy into into action across the entire border. On the other hand, I, I do think, and you know, Julie and I have talked about this a lot. The um, there are so many scenes in this book in which Kirsten Nielsen becomes the person who privately in the Oval Office, inside the government, oftentimes on the phone when he would, President Trump would call her at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, she repeatedly stands up to the president or tries to stand up to the president and says, Mr. President, you can't do that. It's illegal. Yeah. It's immoral. It's in, a lot of times impractical. And in other words, a lot of times her she shared, I, I, I think it's fair to say, the uh, president's overall goal of of uh, reducing illegal immigration, certainly, and maybe even reducing kind of uh, limiting immigration generally. Uh, but but she was often aghast at what he was would propose. Uh, the the scene that we described, in which he kind of loses it in the Oval Office in a two hour kind of rant to all of his staff, in which he says at the end of that, um, "Shut the border, the entire border down with Mexico. Shut it down tomorrow at noon." And she launches in with several of her staff and other people to, to a kind of week-long effort to prevent the president from doing that. And ultimately, that costs her her job. She's fired at the end of that week. Uh, and and I, so I think she's a complicated figure. You know, she, if for people who don't like the president's immigration agenda and, and imagined that there should be somebody inside the government uh, pushing back against it, she was one of those people. And Julie, so some of the key people, Stephen Miller, Kirsten Nielsen, let's finish by going back to um, Trump. Uh, You and Mike, uh, as far as I know, are are not psychologists, and I I won't make you play one, but you do raise, um, you know, one of the core questions, um, and you you around what drives him internally, and you seem to differentiate between the concepts of racism or nativism or xenophobia. Um, versus the idea of bigotry and that um, one of the lines, I don't know if you attribute it to somebody or if it's an assessment, but that, that I think it was somebody said to you that Trump skews more towards um, the bigotry than the other three and that people who know him say, you know, it's, it's not the racism or nativism or, or xenophobia. Does the difference matter in the end? I don't think it really does. I mean, I don't think that you can argue that you can look at some of the things that he says in the book and then just the policies on their face, a Muslim ban, you know, things of that nature, and say that they are not on their face racist or xenophobic. That's not to say that we're making a judgment in the book of what motivates him. Um, but I do think that, you know, the distinction probably, there is probably not much difference in, in that distinction. And I think the other important aspect to understand here is that when when you talk to people who know him and have dealt with him and almost to a person, people who were in these meetings, people who were charged with implementing these policies and heard him talk about immigrants and immigration, you know, over and over again, will say, 
you know, it's, it's not racism. It's not xenophobia that moves him. It's, you know, he, he wants to keep his promise. He wants to look tough. He can't stand the idea of not winning. He can't stand the idea of losing. He can't stand the idea of being humiliated. All of these sort of impulses, I think, actually are more driving forces in what he does than the other. But you cannot deny that having proposed some of these things on the campaign trail, having announced for president calling Mexicans rapists and criminals and drug dealers, that he is appealing to this very base instinct in some portion of the electorate. And you see that White supremacists embrace his agenda yeah. uh, and embrace him, and they are, you know, very enthusiastic about all of this. So whether or not that's what's motivating him, whether or not that's kind of uh, the reason that he sets about to do these things, that appears to be the net result. And more broadly, uh, it it leads to a policy that makes the United States appear to be skewing in that direction, right? I mean, this is not about you know, in the end, immigration policy is not about um, the president and what his personality is. It's about the country and who is allowed to come in and how the country is going to either open itself up or close itself off from the rest of the world. And so that's kind of, you have to look at it through that lens as well, not just about Trump himself, but about what it says about the country. And I think there's no doubt that he has really changed uh, what the message is to the rest of the world on immigration uh, from the way it was under both past Republican and Democratic presidents. You just hit among another of the core reasons why I loved the book, because the book is about immigration policy. The book is about his approach to running government and what has happened and, and as seen through this one issue, as we discussed. But this also gets to the core of the central question, maybe the most important question we can ask as a country, who are we and, and, and what are we? And, and so to, to close out on, on that front, um, and Michael, let's start with you, but I'd, I'd love to hear it from both of you. Where are we in this battle over how to define ourselves and how to define immigration? Um, has the battlefield permanently been shifted? Has that war now been won by the Stephen Miller, Friday Group, Steve Bannon, Jeff Sessions wing? Or is the game still going on and has the war not been decided? Well, I mean, look, I think I think it's it's important to have a little bit of perspective. These these immigration battles have been going on for for decades, more than a hundred years, right? There have been, you know, times in this country's history where we have waves of immigration from different parts of the world. That's usually followed by a backlash, and um, that backlash uh, sometimes lasts for decades, and then sometimes is uh, uh, overtaken by um, you know a more opening uh, open uh, attitude towards immigrants again, and it, and it starts all over again. And I think we're in one of those backlash periods that really was um, created or, or, or sparked and led by Trump, right? We, we were at a moment probably at the end of, after the 2012 election where the Republican Party was set to become more um, open to immigration. That was, that was what the leadership of the Republican Party had decided was going to be their path back to uh, back to the White House yeah. after the the loss in 2012 and and so now you know Trump comes along he leads this um, the country in a very different direction the party and then ultimately the country and I think you know I don't think you know it's over but I do think that 
while policies can be reversed, if there was if, if somebody came along uh, who took the opposite view from Trump and, and, and took back the White House, some of those policies can be reversed. But I think what Trump has done to reset the the debate, reset the debate over immigration, which had, had sort of been headed in a much more kind of uh, direction heading towards cooperation. And he has reset that. And I and I think Julian, I think um, that's not likely to change quickly. Right. The, the political forces um, that he unleashed around this issue are likely to be here for a long time and affecting us, uh, affecting elections, affecting the way we govern for a long time, even when he's gone. Julia, does Mike have it right? I mean, he 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 insisted that I, I you know, it's imp- I, I should have a little bit uh, better perspective uh, and and some historical perspective. Um, so so is he right in his uh, evaluation? I think so. I mean, listen, I you know the one thing that Trump has you know failed to do, uh, among other things, is to pass any legislation, sign any legislation on immigration. So uh, it's true that, you know, another president, either of the same political party or a different political party, could come in and roll back a lot of what he has put in place. Um, A lot of it's been regulatory in nature. Some of it is tied up in the courts and may ultimately get struck down and a future Justice Department could, you know, just drop it and decide not to pursue it. Um, so policy-wise, things can change. I do think politically, and I'm not sure in the end whether Donald Trump is the cause of this or a symptom of this, but uh, the the sort of window of consensus in this country around what constitutes uh, an effective immigration reform or an effective rethinking of the way that we approach immigration has shifted radically from a focus on how do we bring the two sides together? How do we deal with people who are here undocumented in a way that's effective, that is good for the economy and also humane and also honors our values as a country. Um, That's, that that is no longer the precursor. I think in a lot of people's minds um, when they think about, you know, what is tolerable politically, what they're thinking is, how do we show how tough we can be? How do we show how hard knuckled we can be uh, toward people who want to come here and maybe people who are already here undocumented? And that's going to be a high mountain to climb for anyone who then wants to turn around and say, all right, we need to find a way forward that works for the country and works for uh, people who may want to immigrate to this country. And I, I, you know, I think that consensus becomes a lot harder to come by and the, and the politics become a lot more difficult. Now, I, I do think it's possible that the pendulum swings the other way, but I think in that regard, it's also going to be tricky because you already hear the Democratic presidential candidates talking about, uh, you know, getting rid of immigration laws altogether and having, you know, crossing the border unlawfully no longer be a crime and giving, you know, free health care to anyone who shows up in the country. And I think that is also um, outside the sort of broad uh, consensus in this country of what should happen. And so I think as a reaction against Trump, you have Democrats going so far in the other direction that um, it's really tough to figure out where the middle is on this issue that could yield some sort of progress in the future. Well. That's excellent. So it sounds like, uh, you know, we've got the topic for a follow-up book, um, book two. Um, you know, there's, there's plenty of room. I, I will say your, your book ends with the most Trumpy thing I can imagine. Um, his promise to tweet about it if he likes it. Um, how, how, how have the tweets gone? 
Well, he actually did the opposite. He tweeted about it that he didn't like it. Um, yeah, that's, that was my point. Least, yeah. <laughs> or at least he tweeted uh, in reaction to the uh, adaptation that we did of one of our chapters that, that ran in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago um, and said that, you know, I'm tough, but I'm not crazy. Um, and I think many of our sources in this book would, would beg to differ with that uh, because – uh, everything that we that we said in the in the excerpt that he was uh, reacting to came straight from people who were in the room. But uh, it's interesting how I mean when we when we talked to him in the Oval Office, it, I think it was clear to both of us that he is very actually conscious of and worried about the way that the world is going to see him on this issue. As much as he wants to seem tough and you know, seem like someone who keeps his promises. He doesn't want to be seen as a bad guy. Uh, he doesn't want to be seen as racist. He doesn't want to be seen as, you know, the person who closed the country off to immigrants, he says. And I think that's one of the reasons he wanted to be interviewed on this topic is because he thinks of this as, you know, his reason for running in many ways. And he wants people to have a good, positive image of him uh, as, a, as a leader on immigration. And so you have to, I guess, read the book and come away with your own judgment. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that you didn't get the tweets that I know you were hoping for, and I know you both went into the Oval Office four months ago with the express purpose to you know, try to get those tweets. So I'm sorry that mm -hmm. that didn't work out for you, but uh, you've written just a really important and thoughtful book and revealing book. So thank you for that, and I'm really glad, speaking for all the concerned minds uh, around, that the two of you are still talking after the arduous work of writing a book together. So <laughs> congratulations on that, too. Thanks, Chris. Thanks this so has been much. great. I appreciate it. That was my conversation with Julie Hirschfeld Davis and Michael D. Shear. My thanks to Julie and Mike for the conversation and you for listening. Quick reminders, sign up for my newsletter at chrisreback.com. And if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star rating at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That's all for today. I'll talk with you soon.